Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Can, can you feel the change of seasons coming? Fighting a little bit of a, a cold this morning, bear with me. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51. Um, actually, strike that. I just sent you to the wrong place. We're going to end up in Psalm 51 today. That's our text. But it's going to take me a little bit of time to get there. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. There are sermons um, in a series that are uh, easy to preach. There are sermons that I look forward to preaching. And um, this is not one of those. There are sermons that are difficult to preach. And uh, since I lay out the schedule, those are usually the weeks I take off and wish my son and Ryan and others well. Um, this morning is not a difficult sermon to preach. Um, it's a heavy sermon to preach, just being honest. I've been uh, wrestling with this one all week. When you go to a passage like Psalm 51, it is one of the most important um, passages for sure in the Old Testament. I would even say in the whole Bible because we are dealing with a topic that is needed desperately by all of us and that topic is repentance. The beginning of Psalm 51, even before you get to verse 1, it says this. It says, Psalm 51, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So before we get to the prayer of repentance of David, and so we're in this prayer series, Honest to God, 10 prayers that change the world. We've got to explain and have you understand a little bit what David went through that brought him to the point of repentance. And what you will see this morning is you will see King David um, in a spectacular way drive his life off a cliff. So as I was preparing this week, I was listening to some sermons by other men on Psalms 51, and I listened to an old sermon by a, a favorite pastor of mine, Matt Chandler, on the topic of repentance, and he reminded me of something that I believe wholeheartedly, but I really needed to hear this week. And what I was reminded of was, I believe with all my heart, I am fully convinced that choosing to follow Jesus Christ, choosing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is a path of life that unlocks for you the greatest joy you can ever know. I believe that with absolutely all my heart. Now, I'm not saying that an unbeliever, someone who chooses not to follow Jesus Christ, can't know happiness or can't know joy. They obviously can. They can enjoy a good meal, right? An unbeliever can do that. Would everybody agree? They can enjoy family and friends. They can enjoy sex, right? Y'all got real quiet there. I, I, don't know if you're, I don't know if you're confused about this. The answer is yes. Um, we had a man, he's, he's not with us anymore. He went home to be with the Lord. But in the first few years of our church, um, his name was Amen Ray. Um, we called him Ray, well, because that was his name. And uh, I could say something like that. I could say, now the unbeliever enjoys sex, right? And just by the inflection of my voice, I could always trigger an amen from Ray. So you'd be like, an unbeliever enjoys sex. You'd be like, amen. And then it would get really awkward in the room. So there, there's moments that I miss, Ray. But let's just all agree that the unbeliever, yeah, they can enjoy the same things that we enjoy. But here's the difference for the follower of Jesus Christ. Our joy doesn't terminate 
on the pleasure that we're enjoying, but it has a deeper level because not only can we enjoy good food or sex or good company, but what we do is, as we're enjoying those things, our joy doesn't terminate there, but it is elevated. And we're also enjoying the creator of those things and the one that gave us the ability to enjoy those things. I believe as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, Christ, we have the ability to experience joy at a deeper level than the unbeliever will ever understand. But what happens during life is we come to crossroads. We come to forks in the road where we have to make a decision. We have to choose a path. And in the moments of temptation, we are prone to forget the truth that I just told you. See, when we come to a crossroads and we're tempted by sin, in that moment, we want to believe that God isn't a giver of joy, but he's a taker of joy. This goes all the way back. You can see this in the first sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were convinced that God was a taker by not allowing them to partake of a certain fruit, the forbidden fruit. Satan convinced them that God was squelching their joy. Like, you're enjoying so much at this level. Man, if you had this, you'd be like God. There'd be a whole nother level of joy that you have yet to experience. So before we get to Psalm 51, I want to take you through the progression in David's life that led him to the point where he had to cry out in repentance. As we go through this story, I would just ask you to pay attention to how many warnings How many stop signs along this road that David chose to take? How many times God's grace was evidenced in David's life with warning, warning, don't go any further. And yet David made some choices that would eventually have some significant consequences. So here's the first thing in your notes if you're keeping them. Choice one, the path of sin. I'm going to start Our story in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, now remember, King David, so when the kings are supposed to go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened... It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. The first thing that you will see on the path of sin is David was in the wrong place, wrong time. A little bit of review. At this moment in David's story, at this moment in history, David is at the absolute peak of his kingdom. This is the best moment in David's life. He has peace on all of his um, borders. He has incredible wealth. He has family. He has power. He has influence. Uh, David is doing um, really well in this moment. But in this moment, when the kings should be out patrolling their borders, expanding their borders, protecting their borders, in this case, David makes a decision. He makes a choice. I'm not going to be where I should be I'm going to stay home. And if you notice in the text, it says that he arose from his couch. David's is a couch potato. He's at home, relaxing, just chilling. Wrong place, wrong time. And he gets up and he takes a walk 
on the roof of his house, maybe on a balcony at, at one of the higher levels of the palace. And as he looks down, he is confronted with temptation. I find it interesting that if you study David's life, some of the best psalms that David ever wrote were during the season where he was in the wilderness chasing, being chased by King Saul. He was running for his life. In those moments, he didn't have time to be tempted by sin. But David made a choice. He chose idleness. And he finds himself in this story in the wrong place at the wrong time. When you look back on some of the poor choices that you made, how many times can you reflect and be like, man, I, I put myself in the wrong place at the wrong time? Like, man, I have no idea how I got so plastered last night. I was minding my own business. I was sitting at tip a few at 1 a.m. And the next thing I know, I was just like slosh. Like, like really? I travel for work. I travel for business. And I'm in a town and I really don't know anybody. So I thought it might be just interesting to go over to that part of town where things... Really? Everybody was asleep. I really didn't have anything to do. I wasn't tired yet. So I just started surfing on the internet. I wasn't really looking for anything in particular in all of the... Wrong place, wrong time. David was a great man. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Do not believe that if what we're going to read, what occurred in David's life, is something that we all are not susceptible to. I've heard many stories of people who have blown up their lives without exception in those stories, you will find an element where they made a choice to place themselves wrong place, wrong time. And as I studied this week, I was reminded that wrong place, wrong time isn't just a physical location. You guys get that, right? You can go to a wrong place, wrong time, right inside your own mind, right inside your own thoughts. You can go to a place where you focus on past offenses, past wrongs that you've endured, and in those moments you can let bitterness take root rather than focus on the goodness of God. You can go to future conversations or encounters that may or may not ever happen, but you're rehearsing in your mind what you would say if you were in that situation and you're allowing anger to consume. It's not just a physical place. And the truth is, all of us tend, we have a tendency, a proclivity to wander to the wrong place, wrong time. It is a daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes moment-by-moment -moment decision to avoid those places. Here's the second thing. Wrong choice, wrong speed. Wrong choice, wrong speed. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said... Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, a little bit of background. Uriah is a captain in David's army. He's a very significant man. He was one of 30 men that went into the desert to rescue David. This guy has risked his life for David. And all of a sudden, David sees this woman. He is tempted. And immediately, by God's grace, he puts a stop sign in his path. And a guy goes, hold on. She's married to your friend. Now, 
I need to also point out at this moment in the story, David already has two wives at home. Men, you can't handle the one wife you have. Okay? He's already got two. This is a third woman, not a great plan. And, and, and David has warning. David blows through that stop sign. He's starting to make wrong choices at the wrong speed. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Okay, so in 3, notice the speed. A lot happens in two verses. He sees her. He inquires. He sends for her. He takes her. He sleeps with her. That's a lot for two verses. I'm telling you, there are moments when temptation strikes. We have to slow down. Consider for a moment, where will this decision lead? Why is this thing so desirous? What's going to be the fallout of this decision? Who else is going to get hurt through my sin? Verse 4, Then she returned to her house, Bathsheba returned to her house, Okay, so at this moment, things aren't so bad. Yeah, he shouldn't have slept with her, but at least she's returned to his house. This is, a, this is a, maybe a one-time thing. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. How do you think David took the news? You think Beth Sheba was scared to send that news? See, David choosing the path of sin, wrong place, wrong time, wrong choice, wrong speed, has now led him to a second place in, a in, in another fork in the road. Like, when your sin begins to bear consequences, you come to a second decision point. Am I going to repent, or am I going to hide? So now David has to choose, should I confess my sin, should I deal with my sin, it's having consequences, or should I choose to hide. And David goes down path two, the path of hiding. Verse six of chapter 11, 2 Samuel, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Okay, that's, that's good news. Like he's getting Uriah back from battle. He's going to deal with the problem. Not so fast. Here's point one. On the path of hiding, you need to know that this road, this path, it's a steep decline. Sin accelerates. Watch what happens. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So Dave, Uriah is pulled back from the battle. He's back at the palace. He meets with David. It says, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So you, you think this is an awkward conversation for David? I wonder how well he planned out what he was going to talk about. I wonder if there was a moment where he thought he might come clean. But it's more like, so Uriah, what's up? Okay, going good? How are the other people? Like, an incredibly awkward conversation. They had some pretty serious things they needed to talk about, but David chooses to lie. He chooses to cover 
And now you're going to understand his scheme, verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. So David comes up with this plan. If I pull Uriah back home from the battlefield and I send him home and he sleeps with his wife, then her pregnancy can be accounted for by his return from battle. But there's a problem. Uriah doesn't go in and sleep with his wife. Goes on and says in verse 10, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to him, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You think that stung David a little bit? I'm at the battle. The men are fighting. You called me home. And there's no way I'm going to sleep with my wife because I am at war. I am at battle. David's not at battle. He's just up at his house, lying on his couch, sleeping with Uriah's wife. Like, that had to sting. Uriah is fully aware that he is immersed in a battle and as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we forget that sometimes, don't you? That this, this life isn't um, about our ease and our comfort. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. And Uriah will not sin against David. He will not betray his men in the field. It says, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him, and Uriah came and ate in his presence and drank so that David made Uriah drunk. Okay, so the plot thickens, right? First he sends him home, but he's too noble to go back home. Now he says, uh, now he tries to get him drunk. Steep decline, steep decline. Now I am tempted to go off on a rant on alcohol, but I'm not going to do that. I would point out that alcohol on its own is not sin but please realize on the path of sin there just seems to be a lot of bars could we agree the issue is drunkenness and I have yet to meet with somebody who comes to me and says you know what last night that conversation that argument with my wife that decision I had to make Man, I think last night would have gone way better if I was sober. Or, I'm sorry, would have gone way better if I was drunk. The problem was I was sober. Man, if I would have had a few drinks, I think last night, man, I would have been able to handle that way better. I haven't met that guy. So David goes back and says, I'm going to get Uriah to drink. Just plotting and scheming. It says, in the evening, Uriah went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to the house. Verse 14, the story gets dark pretty quick. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Wow. Wow. Can you sense how desperate David is to cover up his sin at this point? See, David made a, a choice 
He wasn't going to deal with his sin. He was going to cover his sin. Sin unchecked breeds more sin. I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll take more time than you're willing to give. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is like a weed. If you don't deal with the first one, they will fill your yard. What David is doing here is murder one. It is premeditated. He has just handed Uriah a note, and Uriah delivers his own death warrant to Joab. For what? For what? Was this because Uriah had sinned? No, this was David covering his sin. And I'm telling you, sin left unchecked. Sin left covered and hid. It won't stop on its own. It will continue to grow. And the cynic in the room saying, so are you telling me that if I don't deal with my sin today, eventually I'm going to become a murderer? No, that's not what I'm saying to most of you. There's some of you I might have some question. Maybe I don't know, okay? But here's what I'm saying. Sin always takes us further down the path when we're not willing to repent and we cover our sin. It always has a consequence beyond what we think. We will suffer. Some in this room, you might be at this point right now. You've allowed flirtation but now that flirtation is a conversation and you're at a crossroads you're at a path is this thing going to remain covered is it going to remain hidden or are you going to repent for some of you maybe it's just a, a, a desire for more money which has now been met with an opportunity which has now been, well, you're not really embezzling, you're just decision point, warning, telling you when we cover our sin, when we don't deal with our sin, it continues to escalate. Look what happens next in David's story. Here's the second thing. Sin expands. There's unintended consequences. Verse 16, and as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. So he, he put him in the area where the war was going to be hot. In verse 17, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. David's refusal to pent once again has greater consequences than he could have ever imagined. Uriah's not the only one who is killed in the battle. Others, David's servants, men that he knew, other men are killed because he has tried to cover up his sin. His intent was only to murder Uriah. That doesn't seem so bad, huh? But the consequences continue to expand. Verse 22, messenger sends word back to David from Joab, tells him that Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David says in verse 25, David said to the messenger, this shall you say to Joab, don't let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours one and now another. 
strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. I got to tell you, that's pretty cold. David has just murdered Uriah. Send him into the fiercest battle and have your men retreat. Joab knows this, and he's worried that Joab's conscience is, going to be, conscience is going to be affected because his sin has now involved Joab. So he sends word to Joab, hey, don't worry. Sometimes in battle, people die. Well, I'm telling you, that's cold. I don't have time to develop it now, but please understand, through the rest of David's life, Joab will be a thorn in his flesh because Joab holds a card and the king of Israel, a man with ultimate power and freedom for the rest of his life will be enslaved to Joab because he can't deal with them because now they share the same sin. The text goes on and says, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And all God's people were like, Whew. he got away with it. Uriah's dead. Nobody's the wiser. Bathsheba has now become his wife. And, and do you think the rest of the story is he lived ever, happily ever after? Look at the next verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here's the third point. When sin arrives, when it reaches its destination, when sin arrives, heartache. David will never again in his life, due to the consequences of his, uh, his sin, experience the position he had before he saw Bathsheba. As a result of his sin, this baby will end up dying as soon as he brings Bathsheba into his house, there is conflict in his house for the rest of his life. One of his sons will rape one of his daughters. Another son will try to uh, pull off a coup and overthrow David. David suffers the consequences of this sin the rest of his life. This path of sin, this hiding rather than repenting, it takes a huge toll on David. This is not a happily ever after story. In Psalm 32, David writes a psalm describing what life was like before he repented. And he says in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David lives a life from this point forward where he is anxious. He can't sleep. He's nervous. He's probably wondering, what is Joab going to say? Who else knows? Who is he told? He bears the guilt and the shame of the other men and their families who suffered because of his sin. The fatherless children in his town because other men were killed as part of his cover-up. All of this gnaws at him. I'm telling you, this guilt and shame, this part, this isn't in the brochure of sin when you're making your choice. This part isn't included. So you ready for some good news? This thing's been pretty dark so far, right? Here's the good news. David, in spite of all of the choices and the gravity of sin up until this point, he is about to make a third choice. He is going to get on the path of repentance and on this path of repentance, he will declare that God 
in spite of his sin, has the ability to restore the joy of his salvation. So turn over just one chapter, not yet to Psalm 51. Let's look at what happens in 2 Samuel 12 as David gets on the path of repentance. It says in verse 1 of chapter 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. By sending Nathan, God is showing David incredible grace. Nathan is going to confront David on his sin, and I would encourage you, even think in this moment, praise God for the Nathans in your life. Praise God for the people who had the courage to speak up to you when you were making decisions and sin was accelerating and the consequences were expanding, where they were the warning sign to say, don't go there. Make a second decision. You're going in a bad direction. There might be some of you in this room that God's impressing on your heart this morning. You need to be a Nathan to a friend. He sends Nathan. It says Nathan came to him and said, now Nathan is going to preach a sermon. He's going to give an illustration. He says, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ulamich. He had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Have we got any dog people in the room? Okay, so, so you're kind of picturing what's going on here. You know how some people are with their dogs, that they're sharing their food. And Listen, I'm a dog person. Like, like I can relate to this thing. This thing was his pet. Do you have any cat people in the room? I can't really explain what's going on here to you because you like cats, but you, you, you understand. <laughs> it's um, like, like there's real affection for this animal. You're going to want to email Cal about that this week. <laughs> it says, now, there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan has just delivered a wonderful sermon to David. He is trying to convict David of his sin, and like many people who hear a great sermon, what they do is they, yeah, that guy deserves to die. I hope that other person's hearing this. Nathan, because he was an instrument of God's grace, is about to do something because there is a God who unconditionally loves David. Nathan is about to drop the hammer. David is like, find me that guy. He's going to pay. I'm going to make sure that this is set right. And Nathan looks straight into David's eyes and he says, you are that man. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you over, has, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Hear God's heart for David. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
There is no room for David to blame somebody else for killing Uriah. This is not about people die in battle. Nathan is driving the nail home to David. Your sin killed him. You drove the sword into Uriah. You're responsible. Verse 12. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's busted. His sin is accelerated. His sin is expanded. He's continued to hide. He's continued to cover. He believes that the consequences are in the past. And there is a moment here where he is confronted by Nathan and his world crashes in on top of him because up until this point, he has chosen not to repent. Don't make the same choices that David did. What will God use? What will it take to get you to be willing to come clean about your sin? Here's, here's the great news. Look at the next two verses. Look at how quickly this story turns. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, he repented. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I'll be honest, in this room, we're not really good at repentance. We don't even know what it means to repent. Too often for us, repentance is um, what 1 Corinthians will call worldly sorrow rather than godly grief. We say, I'm sorry. I feel bad that I got busted. Really hate that I'm in this predicament. I'm sorry. It's a, this is what my emotions feel. Or we make an apology. An apology is a defense. David couldn't blame the pressures of being king. He couldn't blame the beauty of Bathsheba. He couldn't blame anything. Repentance is when we own our sin. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now turn over to Psalm 51. There's four things I want you to see that are marks of true repentance. The first one is David sees his sin vertically. He has just declared to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Too often we trivialize our sin. Well, it's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. I'm human. God will forgive. Listen, you need to understand, as it relates to your sin, your opinion doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters as it concerns your sin is the person who has the power and authority to forgive your sin, and that's the Lord's. And the Lord says that the wages of sin are death. Most weeks at this church, we preach about the unconditional love and the incredible grace of our God. But if you don't understand how God feels about your sin, if you don't understand God's wrath against your sin, you can't come to the place where you can fully appreciate the unconditional love by which he pardoned you. And we need to see our sin vertically. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, he says this in verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. So he's only sinned against the Lord? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the other men and their families that fell? It seems odd to me that David is saying, against you only I have sinned. But what David recognizes in this moment is before he committed any of those other sins 
against any of those other parties, his first and foremost sin was against the Lord. Because he came to a point where he chose that being with Bathsheba would bring him greater pleasure, greater joy than following God. In that moment, he believed that God was a taker, he wasn't a giver. And his first sin that led to all the other sins was actually against God, believing that he wasn't good. It's interesting, later in verse 12, David is going to say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And we believe because of his sin and because of his guilt, he wants to see the joy of his salvation. I would say it works the other way as well. When we forget the joy of our salvation, that's what leads to our sin. And David in that moment has forgotten the goodness of God. His sin was primarily against God. The others were collateral damage. You need to see your sin vertically. You need to embrace the reality of your condition or our condition. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is taking full responsibility. No excuses. David is amazed and astonished. And please hear me. As long as we view sin as a series of unfortunate, or unfortunate choices, when we view our sin as isolated events, we will never get to the root need, understand our nature and our need for repentance. Sin isn't just about what we do, it's actually who we are. David says, against you, you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. I was brought forth in iniquity. Here's the third thing. I'm just going to read through this psalm quickly. Please understand that as David declares statement after statement in this song, he is declaring that God is his only remedy. Verse 1, God have mercy on me. God, only you can blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, God wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, God, purge me with hyssop and then I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 8, you, you alone can let me hear joy and gladness. Only you can set the bones that have been broken and make me rejoice. Verse 9, you hide your face from my sin. You renew a right spirit within me. You cast me not away from your presence. Only you, verse 12, can restore the joy of my salvation. Only you, verse 14, can deliver me from blood guiltness. Only you, O Lord, can open my lips and my mouth may declare your praise. He is totally dependent on the mercy of God. There is nothing that he can do to make himself right to deal with his sin. He understands that God is his only remedy at this point. As I read this psalm, David is not begging for relief from the consequences of his sin. And he is not only driven to his knees because of the guilt of his sin. He is finally recognizing who God is, that he is a merciful God. In verse 1 he says, you have unwavering steadfast love for me. And is that view of God... It is understanding God's mercy that drives him to his knees and causes him to want to repent. He sees God as his only remedy. And then here's the last thing, point four. 
see my sin vertically, embrace the reality of my condition, see God as the only remedy, and here's the fourth, embrace the gospel. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Listen to the next verse. And Nathan responded, he said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. How long did it take God to forgive? With repentance, the forgiveness was immediate. Talked to a man in the last couple of weeks. He goes, you know, I really love Harvest. I've started to attend. I attended another church, but this is all brand new to me. And I got to tell you, though, there's a lot of Sundays I hear a message and I leave and I feel really cruddy about myself. No apologies for that. One of the jobs that we have to do is we have to confront you with the nature of your sin. But here's my problem. I never want you to leave this place feeling bad. There's decisions that we can make today on how we deal with our sin through repentance that can restore to you the joy of your salvation. See, the man who says, I, only, I leave here feeling cruddy, he's only got half the story. Listen, sometimes we're confronted beyond what we can believe about the level of our sin and our depravity and our fallenness. In this chapter, David describes our, his sin with three different words. Sin, he's missed the mark. Transgression, he is rebellious by nature. Iniquity, he, he, he leans towards perversity. But though David recognizes that, he also recognizes that there's a God who loves him unconditionally and can restore him completely. And when David got to the point of repentance, Nathan was quick. Thus says the Lord, I'm not holding your sins against you anymore. How great is the gospel? Now you need to understand that David was on the far side of the cross. Jesus hadn't even come yet. And David is crying out for the promise of a Savior. I find it interesting that throughout Scripture, everywhere you look in Scripture, there is kind of this universal command or this universal thought. It goes all the way back to the law. If you keep my law, I will be your God and you will be my people. Throughout Scripture, you hear, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. When we choose obedience, when we choose repentance, when we choose not to hide our sin anymore from the Lord, we're shown in Scripture and we're told in Scripture over and over and over again that in that moment God will restore and he will run to embrace us. Would you agree? There's one exception. There's one exception. In the garden, Jesus is praying and he is faced with the reality of his imminent death, crucifixion, trials, betrayals, and agonies. He cries out in that moment. He says, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus is surrendering himself and choosing to be obedient to his God in spite of what lies ahead. And in that moment, God says, because you have chosen to be obedient to me, I will abandon you. And you're going to go to a cross and you're going to bear the weight of the world's sin. And in that moment, Jesus Christ, why have you forsaken me? And God says, when Jesus Christ chose to be obedient, God the Father looked the other way. Why? 
so that he would never look the other way when we sin. And when we cry out and we repent because of what Jesus endured on the cross in our place, we have the confidence to boldly approach the throne of God. And when we repent because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God will never cast us away. See, David was willing to endure the consequences of his sin because it was more important to him that he got the presence of the Lord And quite honestly, when we're hiding our sins, isn't that the very crossroads that we all come to? What's more important? I just don't want to be exposed and I'll forfeit the joy of my salvation or I'll turn in repentance and even if I'm exposed, I'll once again know the presence of the Lord. Are you guys struggling to see where I'm going with the sermon? Are you guys kind of seeing a theme through this? What am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to examine your life and see what areas that you're choosing to continue to walk down a path of sin and a path of hiding, understanding that it doesn't end well and you have an opportunity this morning to choose the path of repentance and understand what it means once again to to feel the joy of your salvation. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. seems like a good place for an altar call but I'm not going to do it I want this moment to be just between you and the Lord what kept me up this week what makes this message difficult to deliver what I've been praying for this week is there would be someone in this room who would have the courage to recognize that the path that they're on is leading them to a place of destruction and that they would grow weary of the guilt and the shame and the lies and the cover-up and they would know the joy of seeing the relationship restored with the Lord. But that's not all. I don't know how you study a passage like this without being convicted of things in my life and decisions that I'm making and places where I need to repent and confess. Great news. You don't have to leave here feeling bad about yourself. You can leave here feeling great about a God who forgives and restores. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you do what um, you alone have the power to do. Reveal yourselves to the people in this room. Overwhelm them with your incredible grace and mercy. Remind them of your unconditional love. Father, move in hearts today. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.